Welcome to Keep the Faith Ministry. Keep the Faith brings you timely messages with in-depth spiritual analysis of current events in light of Bible prophecy so you can prepare for the coming of Jesus. Listen to what the news won't tell you. Here is another important message for our times. This is Pastor Hal Mayer. Welcome to Keep the Faith Ministry. Thank you for joining me once again as we study another major prophetic issue taking place right before our eyes. Today we're going to consider Brexit, the British vote to exit the European Union. And while many of God's people have hastened to conclude that the Brexit is proof of the certainty of Bible prophecy, which says that the nations will not cleave together, there is actually much more to the British popular vote to separate from the European Union than they understand. While it is true that Bible prophecy will come to pass and that the nations shall not cleave together, there are some things about the Brexit that will surprise you. To understand the reasons why the Brexit took place is also very important. But before we begin, I would like to share with you a quote from someone I do not know. Though it is a quote from a secular person that probably has little interest in the Bible or what the Bible says, his comment is extremely cogent and on target. Here it is. Listen carefully. Everyone deep in their hearts is waiting for the end of the world to come. That's from Haruki Murakami, a best-selling Japanese author who writes fiction and non-fiction. This is a statement of what he sees in the human heart. Sometimes even secular or non-religious people come out with truths that defy the very thing people want to hide. Friends, the end of the world as we know it is coming, and quite soon, actually, and most people fear it and don't want to discuss it because of its implications for their lives. Hollywood glorifies it in film. The music industry memorializes it in song, rap, and other genres. Many people are watching world events and realize that there's a huge, stupendous crisis approaching. But they want to think that it won't happen in their lifetime. They foolishly carry on with their lives in their usual way without preparing. I pray this is not describing you. No one needs to miss out on heaven. No one needs to miss out on salvation. But you must be prepared. You must live in Christ. The Bible is the only book that gives you the method by which you can reach eternal life and navigate the end of this world. At the very same time as people are rejecting the Bible as irrelevant and impractical, the Word of God has become the most important and relevant book of our times. It is more important to understand the Bible and the salvation that Christ offers than it is to eat your daily bread. Make the Bible your companion today, my friends, and it will have a powerful effect on your life, especially as we near the end of the world as we know it. Before I begin, I just want to solicit your prayers on behalf of our work in Australia. Highwood Health Retreat needs your prayers on behalf of our staff and our guests. We need the blessing of the Lord to increase the number of our guests so that more people can find their way to the kingdom of heaven. We also need your prayers on behalf of Amaru Water Gardens Health Retreat. We specifically need the Lord to strive with the Environmental Protection Agency to work with us to accept a proposal for our septic system upgrade that will also satisfy their concerns. 
Thank you for your prayers. My message today has a lot to do with the New World Order and globalism. To get to the foundation and understand the real issues in this confusing world of political and social chaos, you need our 12-part series of six DVDs called The Prophetic Secrets of the New World Order. Order it today by calling 540-672-3553 if you live in the U.S. If you are in Australia or New Zealand, you may order it by calling Highwood Health Retreat in Australia at 03-5963-7000. Let us begin with prayer. Our Father in Heaven, we are living in very compelling times. Please send your Holy Spirit to teach us how to understand them. As we watch events unfold around us, we realize that Jesus is coming soon. Please place your character in our hearts that we may reflect the lovely Jesus to those confused souls around us. As we study today, please open our minds to the important things we need to know. In Jesus' name, amen. Please open your Bibles with me, if you can, to Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. The Bible gives us the method of achieving personal moral sovereignty. Here it is. Let this mind be in you that was also in Christ Jesus. Friends, this verse is the key. If you have the mind of Christ, you will no longer be a slave to sin. If you have the mind of Christ, you will make moral decisions that overcome Satan's slavery. And if you have the mind of Christ, you are free to live for Christ and not misrepresent him in any way before others. Oh, friends, we need the freedom that comes with the mind of Christ. I would rather be shackled in prison with the mind of Christ than be walking the streets as a slave to Satan. The struggle in the great controversy has always been over dominion. The dominion of Christ versus the dominion or control of Satan. Who will rule the universe? Who will rule in the hearts of men on earth? This is the great question of all time, and at the epicenter of that struggle is the Bible. Christ's followers live by the Bible while Satan's followers cavil, ridicule, and make excuses for why they don't follow it. And hardly has there been a time in history when the consequences are as stark as they are right now. Listen to this statement from Desire of Ages, page 129 and 130. When Satan declared to Christ, The kingdom and glory of the world are delivered unto me, and to whomsoever I will I give it, he stated what was true only in part, and he declared it to serve his own purpose of deception. Satan's dominion was that wrested from Adam, but Adam was the vice chairant of the Creator. He was not an independent ruler. The earth is God's, and he has committed all things to his Son. Adam was to reign subject to Christ. When Adam betrayed his sovereignty into Satan's hands, Christ still remained the rightful king. Thus the Lord had said to King Nebuchadnezzar, The Most High ruleth in the kingdom of men, and giveth it to whomsoever he will. Daniel 4.17 Satan can exercise his usurped authority only as God permits. Satan aimed to usurp Christ and replace him as ruler and sovereign, both in the universe and in the domain of human hearts. See Isaiah 14. And when he caused Adam to sin, Satan became the ruler of this world with full control over the human race. 
Had it not been for Christ who stepped in and restored man's power of choice and moral sovereignty on the condition that Christ would die a substitute for the human race, man would have been doomed to experience the full and immediate consequences of sin. Notice the limits of Satan's power. It is only as God permits. God is still in control. He wants informed obedience to his word, and since he does not remove your freedom of choice, he must permit Satan to manifest himself in the world. Listen to this fantastic statement from the book Education, page 173. In the annals of human history, the growth of nations, the rise and fall of empires, appear as dependent on the will and prowess of man. The shaping of events seems to a great degree to be determined by his power, ambition, or caprice. But in the word of God, the curtain is drawn aside, and we behold, behind, above, and through all the play and counterplay of human interests and power and passions, the agencies of the all-merciful one, silently, patiently, working out the counsels of his own will. So Christ still reigns in the universe, but in the hearts of most earthly people he does not. They will not let him. They continue to scheme and plan against him. They try to congregate the nations together in kingdoms, but God has said they shall not cleave one to another. Daniel 2 verse 43. Yet they try. Over and over again, attempts have been made to force the nations into one kingdom, one government, one international overriding authority or dictator that determines what is best for the masses. This is Satan's plan, and it will lead to ruin. Nimrod tried to congregate the people together in cities under the pagan or satanic religion. God confounded their languages so that they would scatter in groups. Even in this... Behind the scenes, even in their frustrated rebellion, Christ guided the people to their new homes. The issue of sovereignty is crucial. It not only involves individuals, it involves families, social structures, and even whole nations. Sovereignty means self-rule and self-determination. Satan does not want you to be able to rule yourself. He removes your power of choice, and through addictions of all kinds, he will rule and ruin your life. Only through Christ and his death on the cross do you have the power of choice to avoid all that. That power makes you free. It makes you a moral sovereign. Christ seeks to demonstrate the power of his love by influencing men to live for him voluntarily. His death on the cross secured to man the power of choice that he had lost in the Garden of Eden. Christ will never remove the power of choice. He gives back to his redeemed people their moral sovereignty. That moral sovereignty is the most important thing, and it can withstand persecution and trial and test. Without it, you cannot make free decisions. His word is the guidance we need to fulfill his will, but we always have free choice. And because of Christ's infinite love, we choose to follow him in response. But again, it is voluntary. Satan, on the other hand, removes your power of choice. He will give you all manner of things to keep you from having frontal lobe sovereignty. He'll get you into drugs, smoking, gluttony, sexual immorality, movies, harmful music, and even prescription medications. And he's got the whole medical world wrapped around his little finger. Anything to keep you from exercising your freedom of choice. 
Anything that leads to an addiction is a method of getting you under his control. Anything that clogs your mind and diminishes your mental acuity can lead to enslavement. Oh, friends, don't you want to have a pure life like Daniel, in which nothing defiled him? I do. And I must do everything I can to keep myself healthy and free of any and all addictions. Nimrod attempted to unite the world against God. But God confounded the language of the people and scattered them abroad. This laid the foundation of the nations and cultures that we know today. Now Satan tries to enslave and oppress whole nations. And like in the time of Nimrod, he tries to get the people under evil human leaders who restrict their freedom and remove their liberties. Like in the time of Nebuchadnezzar, he tries to get the nations to make laws to worship false gods. And in doing so, they worship him. This was the purpose of Nebuchadnezzar's imperialism, and today it is the purpose of globalization. It is all about enslavement of the masses. Controlling the masses has been the purpose of Nazism, Stalinism, Marxism, and every other dictator that's come along. Roman Catholicism had the world enslaved through religious superstition and imperial power. Charlemagne, or Charles the Great, united the empire around his throne. He used a common currency, a common military, and a common religion to bring all the nations, races, and cultures of Europe under his dictatorial control and the control of the church. And it went on for centuries, until finally Martin Luther, under the unction of the Holy Spirit, put an end to its power. But this is also the purpose of the internationalists today, who are trying to resurrect the Holy Roman Empire, first in Europe, then throughout the rest of the world. They want to gradually relieve the nations of their sovereignty and self-determination. Then they want to restrict religious freedom and relieve you and me of our personal sovereignty in the process. That's the big picture. But now let's go back and look at it from another angle. Not only did God confound the languages at Babel, he did something else very significant. He set each language group on their own course to develop their own genetic expression and thereby develop their cultures and ethnic spirit. Their races and cultures develop because of their environment, their conditions of life, and their social activity, among other things. And through this unseen method... God effectively diversified the people and established their many and seemingly endless variations. Listen carefully to what the Apostle Paul had to say to those Greek philosophers in Athens. God, he said, hath made of one blood all nations of men for to dwell on all the face of the earth, and hath determined the times before appointed and the bounds of their habitation, that they should seek the Lord, if haply they might feel after him and find him. That's Acts chapter 17, verses 26 and 27. In other words, out of human genes, or blood, there have arisen many nations, cultures, and people groups. Those of the same language, race, or culture naturally congregate or cleave together. And while there is some crossover throughout the human family, it is largely very difficult to merge the cultures into one grand superculture, as some imperial dictators like Nebuchadnezzar, Alexander the Great, and Charlemagne have tried to do in previous centuries. Only the Greeks succeeded to this in some extent, but it destroyed the ability of the Jewish church to understand and accept Christ's mission. 
And because of the rebellion of the people in Nimrod's day, God separated them into language groups from which ethnicity, race, and culture arose. This created natural boundaries between them so that they could not effectively collaborate in rebellious projects as they had done under Nimrod. And ever since, and in particular in these last days, God intends to bring them back together in like precious faith uniting them through the conversion of their hearts, centered in the truths of God's word, making them the seed of Abraham by the circumcision of, a, of their hearts, it says in Romans 2, verse 28 and 29. And the last message to the world is to go to every nation, kindred, tongue, and people, in Revelation 14, verse 6. So for those in Christ, there is no excuse for prejudice, no excuse for oppression, no excuse for pride of one's racial background, and no excuse for racial separation. We're all one in Christ. The only way to unite the cultures in this wicked world is in Christ. It is not possible to have racial or cultural harmony by force of military. It is not possible through the political order. And it is not possible through manipulated migration. It is only possible as the heart is softened and transformed by Christ that there can be racial harmony. Satan loves to stir up conflict between races. That which God intended to be a blessing, Satan uses to create suspicion, fear, and conflict. And it can even happen in the church. True Christianity, however, rises above all that to unite people together around Christ. Here it is in Galatians 3, verse 29. And if ye be Christ's, then ye are Abraham's seed and heirs according to, to the promise. There, there's no distinction. In Christ we overcome prejudice. In Christ we love one another. In Christ we are restored to equality and peace. We view each other through the love that Christ has planted in our hearts. Our mission in Christ is to win hearts to Jesus. We are forbidden to get involved in the politics of prejudice and hatred. And it doesn't matter what race you are. We are all carnal sold under sin. But in Christ, we recover our moral sovereignty. In Christ, the prejudice and anger that we once cherished, we now hate. In Christ, the tension we once fostered, we now reject. Where there is prejudice, we now show love and kindness. Where there is pride, we now show humility. Where there is aggression, we now show gentleness. In Christ, we have a completely new attitude toward those that are different from us. In a carnal and wicked world, mixing widely different cultures together is always difficult, and it often ends up in violence and meltdown. This provides an excuse for government to take more power in order to resolve or control the conflict. Globalists use mass migration as a tool of the New World Order to stir up racial and intercultural conflict and then centralize more power to keep the peace, until the masses are all under the control of one great leader, one master dictator. This master leader, according to the Bible, will eventually do everything he can to remove your personal moral sovereignty. Notice in Acts chapter 17 again that the Apostle Paul said that God created the cultures and nations so that they would be more readily able to seek the Lord rather than congregate against him as Nimrod had tried to do. 
As always, Satan tries to twist what God has done, stir up the races into a frenzy and cultivate conflict and war, and we're stunned at the inhumanity that manifests itself toward one another in senseless murders, rape, slavery, and so much more. And there's no escaping it, my friends. We are in an increasingly wicked world that is loaded with sin. We are near the end of time, and as the restraining power of the Holy Spirit is gradually being withdrawn from the earth and from the hearts of evil men and women, they become more impassioned, more emboldened in sin and crime, and more aggressive and gut-wrenchingly violent. Even the law is abused by those commissioned to protect and serve. And friends, in this wicked world, there's no solution to these problems. Satan loves to stir up racial conflict. And while ever he exists, there will be no solution except as you and I turn our lives over to Christ. The real battle is the one going on for your mind and mine. You have to choose whom you're going to serve and whom you're going to reject. Most people reject Christ and serve Satan. Only a few reject Satan and serve Christ. And many there are who serve Christ in name only but are in reality serving Satan. Christ has given us freedom to live for him, even in the most difficult circumstances, even during persecution for Christ's sake. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Pray for deliverance from feelings and emotions that cause fear and anger. Live in the light of Christ's countenance, and the things of this world will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. The effort to rule over nations and masses of people has been tried over and over again in the history of the world. Each time, as the consolidating and controlling power of Satan became great, and his influence over men became almost irresistible, God intervened in world affairs and brought their great and expensive projects to nothing. It happened with Nimrod and Nebuchadnezzar. It happened with Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome. It happened to the Catholic Church and the Holy Roman Empire. And now we are at the end of time, and it is happening again. The plan of the elites, under the guidance of their prince, is to consolidate a global empire. And Rome stands in the wings, waiting her time to become the queen of the world, just as the Bible says she will. Yet it is the great throne room in the heaven of heavens that determines what is to happen. It is the holy angels that hold back the winds of strife, that in mercy to God's people buy time for them to do their work. While there's no question that Bible prophecy will be fulfilled, that the final power to rule the world will again be resurrected in the Roman Catholic Church in collaboration with her formerly Protestant daughters and the kings of the earth, God's people are asleep in their sins and worldly focus. God, in his great mercy, instructs these angels to spread confusion over the nations to prevent them from accomplishing their goals too quickly. With that foundation, let us think about the Brexit, Britain, and the European Union for a few minutes. With the flood of Muslims from the Middle East overwhelming the nations of Europe, the inevitable interracial conflict has created the trigger for the Brexit vote. Tensions were already high in Britain because of migrations from the nations and races from Eastern Europe as a result of the globalist project of the European Union. But the huge influx of Muslims has pushed the people of Britain to the point of exasperation. 
It has created frustration and intercultural tensions so to such a level that strong movements against free migration are threatening the leftist leadership in most of Europe, and especially in Britain. Internationalists, as globalists like to be called, have been working diligently since the 1950s, right after World War II, to construct a political union in Europe that would be a controlling force over the nations and peoples of Europe. Of course, back then they would not admit that. They formulated the European Coal and Steel Community, which eventually became the EEC, or the European Economic Community. They said it would never become a political union. But anyone with any knowledge of economy and trade would know that they were lying, because free trade brings the economies of the nations closer together, and as a result, supranational institutions are needed to manage relations between trading states and regulate the so-called free trade. But while tariffs are reduced or eliminated, in their place rises a social and political system that consumes those funds and more in the regulatory process. At the same time, it increasingly exercises dominion over the nations. The nations gradually give up their sovereignty until they are under globalist control. Inevitably, the process becomes increasingly political. I should also point out that the European Union and its previous iterations are a project of the Roman Catholic Church to recover her lost dominion, which was overthrown 500 years ago at the time of the Protestant Reformation. The European Union is one of the vehicles designed to put Rome in charge of the world again. Eventually, the EEC morphed to the European Community, or the EC, as it took on a more political bent. Then the EC became the EU, as it took on even more political stature. But today, thanks to the heavenly throne room, it is scrambling to prevent a complete breakup of the Union in the wake of the Brexit vote of the British people to take their nation out of the European Union. But where did Brexit come from? What are its roots and how did it come about? Perhaps this question, once answered, will put it all in context. And for the answer, we must go all the way back to the time of Daniel the prophet, who told Nebuchadnezzar that the feet of iron and clay in his dream represents a divided kingdom in which the nations would not cleave or hold together. Many centuries passed as kingdoms waxed and waned. Europe, after the fall of the Roman Empire, became a mix of kingdoms built on different cultures and languages. Some became strong like iron. Others were weak like clay, just as the Bible predicted. And we still see this today. Holding them together was not easy. Union had to be forced upon them. And out of the ashes of secular Rome arose a religious power that took its place for 1260 years. The Apostle John in the book of Revelation clearly pointed out that there was coming a time of great darkness under religious oppression for God's true church. Revelation chapter 12 reveals to us that the true church of Jesus Christ fled into the wilderness under Rome's persecution in the 6th century and beyond. Let me remind you that the ten tribes or nations from the east who needed more territory divided the Roman Empire. As the Romans withdrew further and further south, the Anglo-Saxons established their rule in what is today England, while the Franks settled in what is today France. The Alamanni or the Germans established themselves in part of what is Germany today. 
The others spread themselves over other parts of Europe. Each race had their own culture and language, and each developed their own way of doing business and running government. In place of the Roman Empire arose the Catholic Church, with all its superstitions and false doctrines. The new Rome was given temporal authority by Justinian in the 6th century, and Charlemagne, king of the Franks, forced the unity of the nations under his political, military, and religious empire in the 8th century. But God is always prepared for what is coming. He sent Waldensian missionaries, starting in the 2nd century, to begin a work that would foment religious opposition to the Catholic Church for a thousand years through the dark ages of papal rule. They laid the spiritual foundation for the Lutheran and Calvinistic Reformation, which would eventually cause great upheavals and overthrow the power of Rome. Rome was and is a globalist power that works in harmony with the Prince of Darkness and the kings of the earth to remove national and personal sovereignty and force compliance with her worship. Then, as the ten tribes were getting settled in their new territories in the fourth century, God sent a man to Ireland to do the work of an evangelist. His name was Patrick. Born and raised in Scotland, Patrick was taken as a slave to Ireland at a young age. Eventually he escaped and came back to Scotland. He found Christ and developed a burden in his heart to win his former slave master and his family. So he went back to Ireland voluntarily and successfully reached most of the family with the gospel. Then he went about Ireland establishing churches, raising up schools, and conducting handwritten publishing work to spread the word of God everywhere. This stirred the hearts of the Irish for liberty, which they defended until the 6th century. And by the time papal emissaries came to Ireland in the 6th century, much of the population were already following New Testament Christianity, and it wasn't the papal kind. Two hundred years later, there was an Irish boy who went to one of the schools Patrick had established. Columba developed a burden for lost souls and sailed with 200 of his friends to Scotland, where ruling relatives gave him a small piece of land for a place to start a missionary school known as Iona, on a tiny wind-swept island off the coast of Scotland. From there he did a powerful work of raising up more churches and schools. He sent out many missionaries. He trained his students to copy scripture text and spread them all over Scotland, Britain, and beyond. Again, it wasn't the Roman Catholic religion that he promoted. It was the religion of liberty, including liberty to follow the Bible. One of Columbus' students, Aidan by name, went to England and established a school on another island called Lindisfarne, and that was only the first of several. He, too, sent out missionaries all over England to teach the people to follow the Bible. This, too, was the religion of freedom. It placed emphasis on following Christ rather than popes. It gave its followers a sense of personal responsibility and moral sovereignty that is still with England today. Friends, the gospel builds in the heart of its followers the love of freedom. It places each of us in the hands of a merciful Christ who loves us and empowers us to overcome the devil and recover or retain our moral sovereignty. But the papacy cast its shadow, its evil shadow, over Britain. And through lies and deceit, Britain came under the oppressive power of Rome. Rome teaches its adherents that they do not have to take personal responsibility for their sins and their lifestyle. They just go to confession, do some penance, and receive absolution. 
according to Catholic doctrine. Rome teaches that there's no need to overcome sin, no need for moral sovereignty. The cost of an easy religion, however, is that Rome requires control. Making the people dependent on the system to be saved is the way she does it. Their minds are not free. They think that if they do what the church tells them, they will end up in heaven. This false teaching is at the foundation of all Roman Catholic thought. Britain's people cherished freedom in their breast. Year after year, decade after decade, century after century, as Rome tightened its grip on Britain, its people suffered under Rome's oppression, religious superstition, and economic depression. There were only the rich and the very poor in those days. No middle class was present to stimulate the economy and open doors of opportunity for the masses. Then something happened. The year was 2015, more than 800 years ago. The barons of England were unhappy with the king, who was always fighting wars with France over Normandy and demanding that they give him money to do so. They marched on London, and the king came under enormous pressure to do something about their demands for more autonomy and freedom. They forced him to sign the Great Charter, or the Magna Carta, as it was called. The Pope was very unhappy about the Charter of Rights for the Nobles. Perhaps he could see that if the nobles got more freedoms, eventually the people would demand them too. But he could do nothing about it. England was a long way from Rome, and there were forces distracting him from his concerns over England. The Magna Carta brought subtle but massive change to England. Eventually it led to more freedoms for the people. But there were still forces yet to come into play. One hundred years later, God raised up another man that stirred England with longing for freedom, especially religious freedom. John Wycliffe, the fiery preacher of Lutterworth, was a statesman, ambassador, member of parliament, educator, and scholar. When he found Christ, he worked to enlighten the people. He raised up a school, trained and sent missionaries known as Lollards all over Britain with handwritten Bibles to help the people understand God's truth and break their thraldom with Rome. He became known as the Morning Star of the Reformation. As his message spread around the empire, people began to awaken to the light that was shining from the gospel, and their longing for freedom began to awaken. Rome was nearing the time when it would lose its iron grip on the political empire. Freedom would take Rome's place, and once again men and women could worship the Lord according to the scriptures. Once again, they would have a chance to rule themselves and retain their moral sovereignty as well. Two hundred more years passed. Then Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses on the door of the Wittenberg Chapel and ignited a massive gospel movement that overthrew the power of Rome. It was a great struggle. Satan doesn't want to yield an inch. But God's truth was successful. Germany, Switzerland, the Netherlands, and many other parts of Europe became free of Rome's tyranny. Lutheranism brought the Bible to the people in their own language. It fostered that love of freedom through the teaching of the truth, for Jesus said, The truth shall set you free. Germany eventually separated from the Holy Roman Empire and restored its national sovereignty and self-determination in the process. National sovereignty and personal sovereignty often go hand in hand. England became part of that movement. Henry VIII had his marital issues and a conflict with the Pope. And at the same time, there were forces in England pushing for religious reform. There was a lot of interest in what was going on in Germany. 
Henry saw his opportunity and took England and the Anglican Church out of the Church of Rome and out of the Holy Roman Empire as well. That was the first Brexit, and the people of Britain fell in love with their freedom. Their national character was strongly influenced by the Bible, the missionaries from time immemorial, and the Protestant Reformation, and for good reason. England was to colonize much of the world and with it carry Protestantism everywhere. As you can see, England has a long history of its love of freedom, and today that Protestant influence is still in play, even in Britain's secular society. It is still underlying the national character of the British people, though many of them do not realize it. That underlying Protestant perspective still influences the population of England. Just in time, perhaps, God moved on the people of Britain. The angels of heaven spread a new wind upon England to slow down the process of the New World Order. It is actually hard to imagine why Britain went to the European Union in the first place, and with Britain's Protestant heritage, one wonders why Britain would even entertain joining again with, with Rome in the EU project designed to promote Rome's authority and dominion over Britain and its people. The trouble is, most people in Britain have forgotten about Rome. They don't understand the true purpose of the European Union. The ecumenical movement has so tarnished their understanding that they cannot conceive that Rome has designs on them. And today they do not recognize the connection between Britain's Protestant heritage and the Brexit. What outwardly triggered the Brexit was the mass migration of a foreign culture into Britain. Muslims flooding into Britain don't mix well in Western culture. In fact, they clash severely. After all, the Bible says that God has set the boundaries of their habitation. He has done that, as we pointed out earlier, by culture and language. But the war in Syria, which was fomented by Western globalist powers, ostensibly to overthrow the dictatorial Syrian regime, has created a flood of refugees that has left European nations overwhelmed, frustrated, and very dissatisfied with their globalist leaders who funded and armed the conflict. Syrian Muslims have flooded into Germany, France, Britain, and other EU nations and left them grappling with the chaos their culture brings with them. They no longer have a dictator ruling over them and they cannot handle the freedom of the West properly, nor do they appreciate Western standards and laws. They have no love of the Bible, and they have no restraint by its precepts and influence. They may have their own moral standards, such as halal meat, preparation, abstinence from alcohol, etc., but because Britain has become more secular, its morals have declined severely. Consequently, Muslims view Britain as an infidel nation. But the underlying issue is Britain's Protestant heritage and its continuing residual influence. Many people in Britain want British sovereignty and self-determination back. They do not wish to give dominion over their destiny to another power, especially one that is not working to foster their own interests. But Brexit is not an isolated phenomena. All across Europe, tribalism of all strains is resurgent. There are political parties or rulers that are responding to the discontent of the people against their leftist elites some with radical right-wing strategies to unseat the elites from power. And while that isn't likely to happen entirely, it is nevertheless in full play. The elites won't give up their agenda. They're already scheming to keep Britain in the EU as well as other nations. Europe's leftist leaders are struggling to cope with the rising tide of politically rightist-oriented movements. 
Hungary has had a strong right-wing leader in Viktor Orban. France has the growing right-wing Marie Le Pen party. The Netherlands has its party for freedom. Germany has its AFD, or alternative for Deutschland. As the Scots seek to secede from Britain, Catalonia wants to secede from Spain. The list goes on and on and on. But it's not just Europe. Across the globe, people want to rule themselves and be themselves. They want to be free of their elites who have controlled them for many decades. The Philippines just elected a new president who is known as the Punisher for his extrajudicial killings of alleged criminals and drug users and for bypassing due process in prosecutions. Australia has just had elections, and though the ruling party was reinstated, barely, it lost seats in Parliament, as did the opposition party. And in their places, more right-leaning parties took those seats. This makes for a weak, elitist government that will probably be able to do very little of its agenda. America has its Donald Trump, the Republican nominee for president. He is riding on a wave of deep discontent with the political elites that have run the country for a very long time. Bernie Sanders, who ran against his Democratic rival, also rode on the discontent within the Democratic Party. Everywhere you turn these days, it seems that there's a growing discontent with those who are at the top of the political ladder, many of whom are the super-rich who have seemingly endless resources to fund their ambitions, both political and cultural. The Brexit is an indicator of a much deeper discontent with the elites who have tried to rule British lives by subjecting Britain to the EU. The relationship was fraught with conflict and strain. Charles de Gaulle, former president of France, once said that Britain had a deep-seated hostility to any pan-European project. And how right he was. Britain has a Protestant heritage, while Europe had been historically Catholic. No wonder there was resistance to any pan-European project. The European Union is a Roman Catholic project. Not only that, Britain had sided with the United States in both World War I and World War II. America has a strong historical interest and attention to personal liberties. Getting the Americans to take on the globalist agenda has been anything but easy. That closeness between America and Britain has its corresponding collaborations and has contributed to the sense of independence and sovereignty in Britain. But the elites want to blend everyone together so that everyone will look to them for guidance. That's one of the reasons they want migration. That's why even the Pope advocates for migration, both in Europe and America. And the globalists want to mix nations and cultures and thereby gain control of all through the conflict that ensues because of the carnal heart. They use the conflict as the excuse for increasing control over society in the name of ensuring the peace. Britain joined the European Community, or the EC, in 1973. And ever since, there's been many advocates of separation, through individuals, advocacy groups, and political parties. Back in the mid-70s, the common people did not foresee any serious problems. It was an economic union that only had minor political overtones. Little did the Brits realize the trajectory and destiny to which the EU was taking them. Back then, EU leaders were careful not to make too much of their political intentions. Not many people expected that joining the EU would open the floodgates to massive chaos brought on by almost unlimited migration. 
They did not think that the European community would become the European Union and begin to rule every aspect of their lives. The Brits trusted their leaders more or less to do the right thing, and when they advocated joining the European Economic Community, the people approved of it. Even in 1975, they held a referendum on whether to stay in the EEC. It was approved by a strong 67%, and since there weren't any problems, seemingly, the Brits were happy to be a part of Europe, at least as far as trade and economy goes. But now things have changed. This time around, Britain is deeply involved in the European Union, and every major party in Britain urged the people to vote Remain. News articles after news articles tried to scare the people of Britain into remaining in the EU. They warned of the negative effect of a Brexit on science and research, trade agreements, social life, and on many other aspects of Britain's long-term stability, but especially on the economy. Pundit after pundit, commentator after commentator, and expert after expert declared how badly the economy would be hit by a Brexit. For instance, John Osborne, the Chancellor of the Exchequer, said that the UK would be permanently poorer, costing every household £4,300 a year. Even socialist billionaire George Soros said that a Brexit would push the UK into recession and that financial speculators would be the only ones to gain from a Brexit, while the voters would become considerably poorer. And globalist financial institutions like the IMF and the World Bank took aim at Brexit, saying that there would be severe short- and long-term economic consequences on Britain and on the region. Government leader after government leader urged the Brits to stay in the Union. U.S. President Barack Obama even came out to Britain in April and held a joint press conference with Prime Minister David Cameron. After extolling all the virtues of remaining in the EU, Obama said that if there was a Brexit, Britain would be at the back of the queue for trade deals. Maybe at some point down the line there might be a UK-US trade agreement, he said, but it's not going to happen anytime soon. International cooperation through institutions such as the EU was good for security and global economy, even if that came at the cost of giving up a little sovereignty. A little sovereignty? The EU is continually asking its nations to give up more and more of their sovereignty. That's what it's all about. Give up a little now, a little more later, and a little more further on. Gradualism is the name of the game until finally national sovereignty no longer exists. Bookmakers in London place the chances of a Brexit at about only 20 to 29 percent before the vote. Is Britain going to be truly independent? Is Britain having a new birth of freedom? Will the prospects for Britain become brighter now that Britain has voted for a Brexit? Unfortunately not. While Britain has voted to leave the EU, it remains to be seen if it actually happens. The new Prime Minister, Theresa May, said no talks with the EU would begin until after 2016, and that while there was initial euphoria about the leave vote in the hearts of many Brits, the consequences of that vote will weigh heavy on them for years to come. Globalists will not make it easy on Britain. Britain has bucked them, and they won't let that slide without putting enormous pressure on the people of Britain. Already the IMF has cut Britain's prospects for growth in 2017 by 9 percentage points as a result of the vote. This will increase Britain's already huge debt burden, 
and national debt is already over 85% of gross domestic product, or GDP. The debt will not go away when the divorce from the EU is finalized, and the Brexit will make it worse as tax receipts decline with slower growth. UK citizens have been on a debt binge as well, borrowing like there's no tomorrow. They are borrowing more than a billion pounds per month, said the Bank of England, with no sign of it slowing down. This is dangerous, folks. British people think they're headed up, but they're really headed down. And because of every major party campaign for the Remain vote, there is no one that can really lead the nation at the moment. The same party is still in power, even though there's a new prime minister. And now there's a lot of disunity in the United Kingdom. The fault lines are many, and questions and uncertainties abound about whether the UK can remain together as the UK. Scotland and Ireland, which voted almost completely to remain in the EU during the referendum, are talking about succession from the UK in order to remain in the EU. Nicola Sturgeon, First Minister of Scotland, hinted that Scotland would try to stay in the EU, which would mean separation from London. Scotland has delivered a strong, unequivocal vote to remain in the EU, and I welcome that endorsement of our European status, she said. How will the EU react to the Brexit? Within hours of the vote, political parties in Italy, France, the Netherlands, Spain, Greece, Portugal, Denmark, Finland, Sweden, and even Germany called for their own referendums. Many of the British Leave campaign's complaints against the EU resonated with people all over the European continent. In all my years watching European politics, I have never seen such a widespread sense of Euroscepticism, said Katie Adler, the BBC's European editor. The Brexit could reverse 70 years of European integration, she said. The European Council president, Donald Tusk, put it another way, a more optimistic way. What doesn't kill you makes you stronger. In other words, the council president is planning to use the Brexit to strengthen the EU without Britain. Britain has been a voice of opposition to a really strong EU. Obviously, Donald Tusk sees the Brexit as an opportunity to take the EU to the next level. And while Britain tries to find its feet again, Germany will consolidate her power over the European Union even more strongly than before. You can be sure that German Chancellor Angela Merkel sees this, and she will make sure that Germany is a big player in the Brexit process. One of the first things Britain's new Prime Minister Theresa May did after consolidating her cabinet and meeting with the First Minister of Scotland was to visit Germany to have a working dinner with Angela Merkel and her aides, followed by a meeting with French President Francois Hollande. Formal talks between the EU and Britain will not start until Britain invokes Article 50 of the Lisbon Treaty to trigger the start of Brexit. From that point, the parties have two years to work out their negotiations. Incidentally, the Brexit vote is only advisory, not mandatory. The British Parliament is not required to follow the people. At a Joint press conference with Merkel, May said, we will be taking some time before we trigger that renegotiation. In other words, the Brexit isn't going to happen right away. Merkel said May was right to take a moment to work out a negotiating stance before triggering Article 50 of the Lisbon Treaty. 
It is completely understandable, she said. It is to our advantage to have the UK defining its negotiating stance and to also clearly outline how it sees its future relationship with the EU. These have to be parallel processes. While Merkel says that Britain's exit must be done carefully and to everyone's best advantage, it remains to be seen what the German intentions really are. You can be sure that Germany will increase her power over Europe. Helping Britain gently out of the EU may well be in Germany's best interest because it will remove one of the biggest obstacles to further EU integration. However, buying time may be in order to search out a way to keep Britain in the EU as well. No matter what the result of the British referendum on 23 June, it will lead to changes in the European architecture, said Guy Verhofstadt, a Belgian politician and leader of a liberal group in the European Parliament. Verhofstadt has openly pushed for a single superstate. Gunter Eitinger, an EU commissioner, was optimistic that the EU would move forward after Brexit. My expectation would be that the European project would gather new dynamics, he said. I believe we will gather more power and strength, he added. Before the vote, senior EU officials in Brussels insisted that the Union will emerge stronger than before if its most reluctant member does choose to withdraw. The EU will have found an identity and will have moved forward, deepening in key areas like monetary union and defense. Strengthening the monetary union is crucial if the EU ever wants to get past the economic crisis, but it is also essential to establish a true political union. Germany will dominate that union even more than it has in the past. Taking Britain's voice out of the EU will make its member countries more likely to follow Germany, wherever it leads, wrote Andrew Peake in the New York Daily News. Keep in mind that the European Union is designed as a superstate modeled after the ancient Holy Roman Empire. Britain still has its underlying Protestant heritage built on the national character of its people, whereas Germany's Protestant heritage has played out quite differently. Germany was Catholic before it was Protestant. Britain was Protestant, as I pointed out, long before it was Catholic, and long before the name Protestant appeared in history. The construction of the superstate known as the European Union is a Roman Catholic project. It would be, therefore, difficult to integrate Britain into it. But with Britain on the sidelines, the superstate can progress much more rapidly. Internationalists will continue to ply their construction of the New World Order, even though the British people have voted to leave the European Union. They will find ways to punish Britain for her obstinacy, eventually. Meanwhile, the Bible tells us the angels hold back the winds of strife, buying time for God's people to do their work. Listen to this important statement from Maranatha, page 259. Angels are now restraining the winds of strife, until the world shall be warned of its coming doom. But a storm is gathering, ready to burst upon the earth, and when God shall bid his angels loose the winds, there will be such a scene of strife as no pen can picture. A moment of respite has been graciously given us of God. Every power lent us of heaven is to be used in doing the work assigned us by the Lord for those who are perishing in ignorance. 
Christ tarries in mercy to a lost world grappling with chaos, corruption, and crime. But the time will surely come when Christ will leave the heavenly sanctuary and the nations will be plunged into strife and turmoil, which Jesus described as the sea and the waves roaring. Here's another statement from The Great Controversy, page 614. When he leaves the sanctuary, darkness covers the inhabitants of the earth, in that fearful time, the righteous must live in the sight of a holy God without an intercessor. The restraint which has been upon the wicked is removed, and Satan has entire control of the finally impenitent. God's long-suffering has ended. The world has rejected his mercy, despised his love, and trampled upon his law. The wicked have passed the boundary of their probation. The Spirit of God, persistently resisted, has been withdrawn. Unsheltered by divine grace, they have no protection from the wicked one. Satan will then plunge the inhabitants of the earth into one great final trouble. As the angels of God cease to hold in check the fierce winds of human passion, all the elements of strife will be let loose. The whole world will be involved in ruin more terrible than that which came upon Jerusalem of old. Ultimately, there is no doubt that all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him, including Britain. See Revelation 13, verse 8. God has just bought them some time to get their moral sovereignty back. But as people in Britain become disenchanted with their Brexit, as the future unfolds to them, will they look for a religious leader to guide the nation out of chaos? And while it is hard to say, we know that the end result will be just that. Friends, more than ever, you need to be united to Christ. He has just given you a little more time to bring His character into your life and become His witness. Yield your life to His power. Let Him restore your moral sovereignty so that you can be free to choose His character in your life. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we are thankful that your word reveals what is coming upon the earth. We see the hand of God in the movements that grip the nations. Help us prepare our lives for the great and stupendous crisis that is to fall upon this earth as a result of the rejection of the Holy Spirit. We need your presence in our hearts. We need your discernment to understand the times in which we live and the events that will unfold in the near future. We need your character to rise in us so that we will be a light on a hill in the gross darkness that covers the people of this earth. Please, Father, do this for us, we pray. Give us victory over the enemy. Help us to live for Jesus every day so that these events will be understood and their warnings comprehended. In Jesus' name, Amen. Yeah.
We hope you've been greatly blessed by this month's message. Your prayers and gifts mean much to us. Thank you so much for your support. The song you've just heard is called How Cheering is the Christian's Hope, sung by the Three Angels Chorale. It is recorded on a CD with other beautiful hymns called On Our Journey Home. This lovely CD is available from Keep the Faith Ministry, and if you would like to have a copy of this CD or copies for your friends or family, just send $16 each postpaid to U.S. addresses to cover the cost, and we will gladly send them. Please mention the On Our Journey Home CD. Our international listeners should send $20 USD. The following is our prophetic intelligence briefing, a feature that brings you current events in light of Bible prophecy, especially for those who love the appearing of Jesus Christ. We can see the signs of the times telling us that we are nearing the world's great crisis. May the Lord find us faithful. Our first item this month, Are Evangelicals Looking for a Political Savior? In the 2016 presidential race, the important evangelical vote may be more critical than ever. And they are being courted especially by presumptive Republican presidential nominee Donald Trump. After Trump's private meeting with over a thousand evangelical leaders, the question is whether they are expecting too much of a spiritual leader in the White House. Some critics of the meeting suggest that evangelicals are trying to church up Trump in order to find a political savior. Christians make a foolish mistake, for example, in trying to take the Christian agenda and compel a party, compel a person to represent it, says Dr. Charles Dunn, distinguished professor emeritus, Regent University. Let Donald Trump be Donald Trump, he said. To the extent that you try to trump up someone, you create a false presence for that person, said Dunn. Evangelical Christians should seek to exercise their influence on American politics, but recognize the limitations of their influence, he added. Dunn also responded to the idea that Trump views evangelicals as merely one of many interest groups. He is a smart person, and that's where Christians have made a mistake, he said. They've gotten down to the level of just being another interest group. The Christian faith should not be looked upon as an interest group. Have American Christians made the same mistake the children of Israel did in the Bible by wanting a king and not being satisfied with God to lead them? When Protestant churches shall seek the support of the secular power, thus following the example of that apostate church for opposing which their ancestors endured the fiercest persecution, then there will be a national apostasy which will end only in national ruin. Spirit of Prophecy, Volume 4, page 410. Next, California Christian Colleges Facing Closure and Penalties Christian colleges in California are facing closure and other penalties if they do not bow to pressure to accommodate transgenders, homosexuals, and other practices prohibited in the Bible. Two bills have been introduced into the California legislature that aim to force California Christian colleges to embrace LGBTQ anti-discrimination laws. The sinister effect of the two bills, which were authored by openly gay legislators, is to cripple California's Christian colleges by forcing them to implement gay-friendly protections 
on campus or lose state and federal financial aid for students. Advocates for Faith and Freedom, a law firm, said the punitive laws would undermine federal protections that have long exempted religious colleges from adopting anti-discrimination laws that violate the tenets of their faith. The bills do not consider how the rights of the colleges themselves would be violated. If these bills are successful, the law firm continued, Christian colleges, for instance, would have to allow a male student who perceives his gender as being female to live in the women's dorm to avoid the risk of a lawsuit or the loss of financial aid for students. Similar consequences could also become a reality if a Christian university dismisses a professor or staff member after discovering they were living with a same-sex partner. The bill, AB 1888, if approved, would disqualify Christian colleges from receiving state-funded student financial aid if the institutions deny students on the basis of their sexual orientation, gender identity, or gender expression. What's more, the bill would disallow colleges from obtaining waivers from the U.S. Department of Education on the issue. A companion bill, SB 1146, would mandate Christian schools tell prospective students their institutions are discriminatory. The full implications of the bills remain unclear and open to controversy. It could mean that biological males who choose to identify as females may end up rooming with biological females. Any school that refuses to comply would then be accused of discriminating, resulting in loss of their Cal Grant funding. It looks like the Department of Education got a new boss. The Human Rights Campaign, said Tony Perkins of the Family Research Council. Although it's none of the HRC's business, the organization has made a point of sticking its nose in the First Amendment debate, blazing through college campuses. And like most pockets of society, the clash between religious freedom and sexuality has landed on the doorstep of higher education, which is especially problematic for schools with a conservative worldview. The bottom line is this, continued Perkins, no one should have to get a waiver to exercise their First Amendment rights. The fact that the government is even using these intimidation tactics is cause for congressional action. Accepting federal and state money places schools in difficulty because in doing so they must comply with state and federal laws in order to continue receiving the funds. Now that schools are dependent on state aid for their survival, the new laws and regulations are an existential threat. It would have been far better to resist the temptation to accept government funds in the first place. And if California passes these laws, other states will no doubt follow suit, placing all Christian colleges and universities in jeopardy throughout the United States. Likewise also, as it was in the days of Lot, Luke 17, 28. Next, decline in peace. In spite of President Obama's declaration that we are living in the most peaceful era of human history, there are increasing conflicts and terrorism, especially in the Middle East and North Africa, and a historic 10-year deterioration in peace, according to the Global Peace Index. And while 81 countries analyzed became more peaceful in 2015, declines found in 79 others outweighed the often record-high levels of peacefulness found in most of the world. And while European nations maintained high peace grades, according to the index, and while American, Caribbean, and Asian Pacific states showed some improvement, 
Much of Africa, South Asia, Eurasia, and the Middle East saw deteriorating peace in 2015. Iceland, Denmark, and Austria saw the highest states of peace in 2015, and Iraq, South Sudan, and Syria the lowest. Political instability is the largest driver of decline in international peace and the increase of terrorism across 77 countries. The level of displaced people and refugees is the highest in 60 years. Peacekeeping, funding, and activities of the United Nations drive the lessening of violence in other parts of the world. Violence and terrorism stemming from the Middle East is an ongoing cause for concern in all countries, especially with terrors spread from that region now escalating in historically unaffected places such as Europe. However, the Institute for Economics and Peace, the IEP, notes that despite the growth of major issues in places like the Middle East, the world is making progress in reducing violence overall. If we took out the Middle East, the world would have become more peaceful, said Steve Killalia, founder of the IEP. The earth also was corrupt before God, and the earth was filled with violence. Genesis 6.11 Next, Donald Trump echoes prophecy about Islam. Presumptive Republican presidential nominee Donald Trump stated, probably unwittingly, what Bible prophecy declared about Islam thousands of years ago. Trump berated the Muslim community in the United States for failing to report potential terrorists such as Mateen. Mateen killed at least 49 people in an Orlando, Florida gay nightclub, making the attack the highest number of civilian victims in a mass shooting in American history. They knew that this guy had a potential for blow-up. They don't report them. For some reason, the Muslim community don't report people like this, Trump told CNN. And that reason is rooted in an ancient Bible prophecy and Islamic law. The Quran requires individual Muslims to, to uphold Sharia law in society, which is not required of Christians living under the Ten Commandments. Claire Lopez, Vice President for Research and Analysis at the Center for Security Policy, and a former CIA spy says individual jihadis also have a religious obligation under Islamic law and doctrine. Every single Muslim is individually responsible in a personal way for upholding Sharia. In other words, that doctrine makes of every single Muslim a potential, a possible vigilante, she said. They are obligated to enforce Sharia on an individual basis. And since homosexuality draws the death penalty under Sharia, some Muslims will take it upon themselves to impose it themselves, even without court review or due process. Muslims who feel a calling to impose the death penalty may dwell for years in Muslim communities in the West, slowly gathering courage and hardening their minds in preparation for individual jihad. They may also mingle among Westerners whom they believe are infidels, building friendships and casing their targets for long periods of time. Trump wasn't saying that all Muslims are in America are radicalized killers, but he suggested that Muslim communities harbor killers and do not report them to the police. And while it would be difficult even for Muslims familiar with fellow Muslims who may be potential killers to know enough information to report their radicalization to the police, it is doubly so because 
radicalized Muslims might also punish those Muslims they perceive to be in apostasy or in support of Western democracies, or in infidels as they're called. So they have incentive to keep quiet when they see radicalization taking place in an individual or cell. Westerners think that Muslims should just integrate in Western society and adopt Western values. They try to apply their own rule of law, their own judicial system, due process under their own constitutions to Muslims, but it doesn't really work well. Muslims can't integrate as a whole. The two sides are working with two completely different sets of principles and a completely different mentality. Muslims living in Western nations are quite different from most other immigrant groups that usually group together according to their nationality or religion. Muslims are guided by holy books and laws that instruct all Muslims in jihad. Muslim communities have a different set of complex issues that do not exist among other immigrant communities. Other immigrant communities are not steeped in the concept of individual responsibility for imposing the laws of their religion on a larger society. Muslims living in the West are between the Scylla and the Charybdis. They can't side with the West too strongly or they become targets. But they can't side with radical Islam, which isn't so radical to them in light of the Quran. So they tolerate the violent radicals among them in order to avoid becoming a target and the wild man dwells among all his brethren. It's not that they are fully on board with the violence. The consequence of the Quran, making individuals responsible for enforcing Sharia, puts them in this position. Trump has made a case for the truth of a key Bible prophecy concerning Islam. Whether you agree with Trump's political positions or not, the Bible is clear that Muslim radical extremists find sympathy, protection, and even support among many fellow Muslims, perhaps unknowingly, at least in some cases. Muslim extremists dwell in the presence of all their brethren, as the Bible says, and while there are no doubt Muslims that would report fellow Muslims that are radicalized and violent, there is still enough space in Muslim communities to harbor extremists. Needless to say, Muslim leaders have to publicly condemn the violence or they won't have a place at the globalization table. But the realities on the ground provide a somewhat different narrative. The stage is being set. People are being conditioned to accept and even practice violence in the name of religion. The day will come when the target expands and engulfs those who will be painted as Christian extremists. And he will be a wild man, his hand will be against every man, and every man's hand against him. And he shall dwell in the presence of all his brethren. Genesis 16, verse 12. Next, Donald Trump meets with 1,000 conservative evangelical leaders. Presumptive Republican presidential nominee Donald Trump met with 1,000 conservative evangelical leaders in an attempt to win over the GOP's most reliable voting bloc at a pivotal moment in his campaign. What started as a closed-door meeting with 400 social conservative leaders mushroomed to a day-long meeting with a thousand attendees, involving nearly all the traditional political influencers of the religious right. We are trying to seek mutual understandings, said event organizer Bill Dallas, president of United in Purpose, Tony Perkins, president of the Family Research Council, said he wanted to see how we could bridge the gap between evangelicals and Trump. We are not certain where he is. There are a lot of unknowns, he added. 
There is reason for optimism and possibly hope, he said. When Trump took the stage, he received a standing ovation and then participated in a carefully orchestrated question-and-answer session in what was called a conversation. Topics included religious liberty, the military, abortion, attacks on religious minorities in the Middle East, etc. Former Arkansas governor and presidential candidate Mike Huckabee moderated the conversation. I'm not going to tell you who to vote for, but use your brain, which God gave you, said retired neurosurgeon Ben Carson. Questions were posed by Tony Perkins, president of the Family Research Council, Kelly Shackelford, president First Liberty Institute law firm, James Dobson, founder of Focus on the Family, Ronnie Floyd, president of the Southern Baptist Convention, Samuel Rodriguez, Jr., president of the National Hispanic Christian Leadership Coalition. Shackelford planned to ask about religious liberty and judicial nominations. There is a real palpable concern by people in all these different groups about the culture war against religious freedom that's going on, he said. Perkins said before the meeting, one of the things I want to talk about is what has happened with our military and how it has been used for social experimentation rather than defending America. Rodriguez, whose network of Hispanic evangelical churches is 40,000 strong, asked Trump what his strategy is to protect borders and build a bridge with the Hispanic community. A wonderful community, he said. Trump has repeatedly gotten himself in difficulty with evangelical voters by fluctuating on their key policy issues and repeating that he does not ask for forgiveness. However, the meeting on Tuesday, June 21, was a win for Trump. The tenor of the room was really positive, said Charmaine Yost, past president of Americans United for Life, who was in attendance. I think he really helped himself. He was so conversational and so low-key. It was so different than the rally, very substantive. Before the event, Trump met privately early Tuesday morning with a key group of evangelical advisors in preparation to launch a new official evangelical advisory board. Jerry Falwell, Jr., president of Liberty University, Ralph Reed, president of the Faith and Freedom Coalition, Pastor Franklin Graham, president of Samaritan's Purse and the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association, they all participated in the steering committee meeting. I am so on your side. I am a tremendous believer, Trump told them. Christianity, I owe so much to it. The evangelical vote was mostly gotten by me. One of the leading churches of the United States, uniting upon such points of doctrine as are held by them in common, shall influence the state to enforce their decrees and to sustain their institutions, then Protestant America will have formed an image of the Roman hierarchy and the infliction of civil penalties upon dissenters will inevitably result. That's Great Controversy, page 445. Unfortunately, our time is up. Remember, there are more prophetic intelligence briefings on our website at ktfnews.com. It's been a great pleasure to spend this time with you. I hope you have been encouraged to live for Jesus, for we are near the end. Remember that God has a plan for your life and that right now you can make a new start with Jesus. Thank you for your prayers and support. And until next time, may God bless and keep you and your family in His loving and protecting care. Keep the faith.